How's everybody doing? It's so good to be back. So good to see all of your faces. Uh, even masked, you guys are good looking. Um, I'm, a, I'm really excited to close this sermon series. The text that we're going to spend time in is such an incredibly powerful text. Uh, we're going to hang out with Jesus this morning. How many are ready for that? We're going to go to John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pause there. I want to invite us to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in your name, in your presence, and to come with expectation to meet you, to hear from you, that you would speak to us. Lord, our desire is that we would encounter you the way this woman encountered you. So, Lord, would you fill this place with your presence? 
Come, Lord, speak. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. I'll, as Pastor Denise shared, I'm incredibly uh, just humbled and grateful uh, to be back uh, after a month off um, of not preaching every week and not being, you know, leading staff and, and all these things that are entailed in the job of a lead pastor. It was an incredible time just to disconnect and to just be. Um, you know, we're not human doers, we're human beings. And so just to be, just to remind myself that I have an identity outside of being a pastor and working. And one of the things that I was intentional to do in addition to reading and praying and, and just having time to reflect and I uh, met with a counselor and all these things that just were important, um, spent a lot of uninterrupted time with my kids. Um, but we took it an extra level. We drove down to Orlando. We, so we spent a lot of time with our kids in a closed, confined space called the minivan. And it was down I-95. It is a long drive, my friends. Not for the faint of heart. Um, driving with kids is an interesting experience, to say the least. But one of the things that cracked me up, um, our seven-year-old, Michael, he's our most spirited child. Um, and he's the one, honestly, I think that he's the one that's the most comfortable in our love for him. Because the way he asks for things. <laughs> No hesitation, no reservation. There's no doubt in his mind that we're going to take care of him. But it borders a little on rude, you know? <laughs> and so we get in the car, and as soon as we start driving after stops, first thing he belts out says, hot spot, which was our cue to turn on the hot spot for him. I mean, like, like we were his butlers. And so he's, he's like, he wanted to play his game. He needed Wi-Fi connection. Hot spot. What? No. Can you please? Uh, is it possible? Hey, I want to play my game. And so uh, we coach him through, you know, the soft skills of being a human, you know, and, and teach him like, hey, that's not how you ask. But what I realized, just it's a microcosm of, of an example. The insanity of how much our lives in our day and age is built around our comfort. Everything is designed for us to have access to things that make us comfortable at our fingertips. Like right now on your way home, you could order food from your phone and it could be at your door by the time you got there. As you're going down I-95, you could go down connected to the world, world wide web the whole time if you desired. So much of our modern life is tailored around catering to the preferences of people. Yet, when it comes to following Jesus, it's not catered to our preferences. To follow Jesus, just to warn you, if any of you here are not following Jesus and you're curious what this is about, I want to give you the fine print up front. I don't want this to feel like a bait and switch, that if you decide to follow Jesus later on, you say, hey, hey, you never told me it was going to be uncomfortable, that you lied to me. No, I'm going to tell you from up front, to follow Jesus 
will invite you into some uncomfortable places because where Jesus goes often as we're following him, it rubs against our own preferences. And in this text, it's an interesting thing that it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Did you catch that language? It says he had to go through Samaria. But actually, if you look at where Jesus was heading, Samaria was out of his way. So he didn't have to go to Samaria for geographical purposes. It's not like he was going to 7th Avenue and he had to go through 5th, 6th Avenue to get to 7th. No, he was going to 3rd Avenue. And so why are you going to 7th, Jesus? That's out of your way to go to Samaria. But what we discover is that as we're following Jesus, as he's walking to Samaria, he's walking to an uncomfortable setting. This is not an easy moment. He's about to go into some stuff, some really messy history. We're about to see Jesus encounter a woman who has some really painful history herself, but also she is a part of a people that have some incredible pain that they're carrying. Why I think that's important to note, even before we dive into the text, As we close this series on worship and justice, I think it's important to point out that we did not get into this series because we were trying to be fashionable or trendy or keep up with the current things or or seem progressive. No, we went into this sticky, difficult, challenging conversation because upon following Jesus, we saw that he was heading in that direction. That Jesus heads in the direction of brokenness. He heads in the direction of where sin has marred and and tarnished relationships. Jesus is drawn toward broken things. If you had any illusions that Jesus is drawn to your polished demeanor and your accomplishments, it's good news this morning to begin from jump that he's, he's actually drawn toward your brokenness. He wants to engage in the places where you're weak and broken and struggling. And he had to go and meet this woman in Samaria. And as he meets her, we find out some incredible things. It's important to understand some context for, you to, for us to all grasp why this is such a charged moment. Generally speaking, the best way I could describe the Samaritans is that these were people that were very badly damaged by racism. How so? See, the Samaritans were held in contempt as religious apostates. The Jewish people held the Samaritans in contempt as religious apostates because they considered that they had mixed the purity of Israel's worship with idolatry and the worship of pagan gods. And so the Samaritans, they didn't want to let go of their idolatry, their pagan worship, and they were trying to embrace the worship of Jehovah. And rather than letting go of one and grabbing fully onto the other, they mixed it, and they tried to blend it. You see, it's not a new phenomenon when in our modern day there is a seeking to try to blend modern ideas with Christian truths even though sometimes they are just so opposed to each other. And so here, they were considered in such a low light because they had done this, but in particular, the Samaritans did something, 
a group of them, not all of them, and this is how racism typically works, a group of them, a small group, did something that was considered to be heinous, and now the whole group is seen in this negative light. A small group of them took bones, human bones, and they scattered them on the courtyard of the temple during Passover. And this was incredibly offensive to the Jews. And so Jesus, as he walks in, when, the, when this woman was shocked, he was like, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't have any dealings. This is part of the reason why she was apprehensive to actually have this conversation with Jesus. Because they were held as a as as mixed in their purity of their worship, and they were held in contempt, and because of this instance, the Jews actually created a really awful slur to call the Samaritans. They referred to them as dogs. Imagine if you're in this room and you've ever suffered from someone leveling a racial slur at you. You know the pain. You know the pain when someone calls you a name that was designed to inflict hurt, that was designed to dehumanize you, to view you not as a person but as less than. This woman was a part of a group of people who had been leveled against these racial slurs against them. She's been dehumanized by connection to the group of people that she's a part of. She suffered in this way. And so she's really apprehensive Jesus is talking to her because she's not had good experiences more than likely with Jews. It's a safe assumption that at one point in her life she was probably called a dog. It's a safe assumption that at one point in her life, given her apprehension to engage with Jesus, a Jewish man, that she probably had some difficult experiences at the hands of Jewish people and Jesus is talking to her in public. Oh, this is scandalous. You say, scandalous. It, it, I think we need to revisit our views of Jesus. If our view of Jesus is one that doesn't shake us and rub us the wrong way and, disorder, and he doesn't surprise us, that he doesn't push the limits of what we think he should do, Right now, he is engaging in something, not just because she's Samaritan, but it was actually a big no-no to speak to a woman in public. You say, what was the big deal? Oh, I'll tell you what was the big deal. The big deal was that women in that culture were even more dehumanized than they are in our time. They were not seen as equal by far. There's actually ancient writings that said if there was an accusation against a man by a woman, it would only potentially be believable if there was three women that could say they saw a man commit this. And even then, there was margin to say we might not fully believe the story. How many remember? We've seen that in history, where at one point, African Americans, they were not considered whole people, three-fifths clause. There's something incredibly dehumanizing that this woman has experienced at the hands of Jews, and yet Jesus, a Jewish man, is speaking to her in public. I want to read this quote. This is from ancient writings. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, 
and certainly not with someone, somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. Yet Jesus, at the risk of being judged, he did not care. Aren't you glad that Jesus is willing to be viewed negatively by others in order to meet us? That he has no care or regard for what people would say about him by virtue of him associating with us. He's connecting with this woman. Even though it was considered that you could become unclean by associating with things that were considered unclean. And this woman was considered unclean by the Jewish people because of her heritage, the people she came from. But also, we read about her personal history. And this is scandalous, but not in the way that we would think. For years, I remember reading this text until I knew the context, and I read it as the experience of a woman who was morally loose, who couldn't commit to a marriage, who was probably unfaithful. What was I doing there? I was reading it from a modern lens, I was interpreting it through my modern lens of what I would understand her issue to be. She had five husbands. And Jesus says, the man you're with now is not your husband. But that was such an incorrect reading of the text because actually if you understand ancient culture, she had five husbands and each of those husbands, she never had the power to divorce any one of them. It was not in the hands of women in that culture to have the power to end their marriage. And so a man could be abusive. He could be untending to her heart. He could be just an awful husband. And a woman was utterly powerless to do anything about it. And yet we're reading the story of a woman who five times has had the experience of having her safety, her, 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 her protection. Marriage was a protective feature for women in that time. And she has had that ripped out from her five times to have her name changed, to have her security, her home changed, to have her income, her hopes. All of this has happened to her five times. And at now at this point, perhaps she's just given up. She's not even married at this point, which carries an extra layer of shame to this woman, Jesus comes and he asks her for a very simple yet powerful request. He says, could you give me something to drink? I'm thirsty. But if you know anything about Jesus, when Jesus asks you a question, the answer he's looking for is never the obvious one. He's always going underneath the surface. He's always going to the heart of the matter. And what's interesting is that it says that she was getting water at the hottest part of the day. This is not the ideal time to get water. How many have ever gone to like Palm Springs or Arizona, like desert areas? If you're familiar with those places, you go and hang out and feel comfortable at 7 in the morning. But when it's noontime during the summer, it's an 
awful place to go. <laughs> I remember my in-laws were considering retiring in, in Southern California because they really loved it. They felt no aches in their bones. Um, it was just like, wow, the dry heat. And they asked a local person, um, hey, what, uh, we'd love to retire. What would you suggest? Some, some thoughts. And they said the strangest thing to them. They said, oh, it's great here. You just got to get a summer home. And they're like, what? Well, we're from New York. What do you mean a summer home? They're like, oh, yeah, you don't want to be down here during the summer. It's 120 degrees. It's awful it, during the day. You just got to, you basically live in air conditioning and you wait to the night when it breaks and gets to a cool 90 degrees. And so this woman is going out to get water during the hottest part of the day. This was not a good decision in terms of timing or planning, but it's a great decision if you're trying to stay away from people. Her life had become so isolated because of the judgment that people hurled upon her because she was Samaritan, because of her own personal history, that at this point she is going to get water for herself and her livestock at a time intentionally designed that she would see no one. And yet Jesus meets her at this point, and he asks her, will you give me a drink? And here's where it gets scandalous. In order for Jesus to receive this drink, he was going to have to drink from the same vessel that she drank from. He was going to have to put his lips and receive water from the same vessel that this woman who had experienced racism, who had experienced just incredible marginalization, oppression, uh, just been powerless, says, give me some water and, and I'll drink from the same cup that you drink from. And in that gesture, it points profoundly to what ultimately Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was he drank from the cup of our shame, of our isolation, of our rejection, of our wrongs, of our faults. He was not willing to redeem us at a distance. No, he came as close as possible to the point where the scripture says our sins were laid upon him. He died the death of a, of a murderer, of a criminal. He was murdered violently, brutally, and he did that in order to drink from the cup of our shame, of our sin, of our isolation. And with this woman, he was willing to come that close, that up close and personal in order to come and, and bring her in to a place of worship. You may be wondering, what does this have to do, Chris, with a series about justice and worship? I'm happy to learn all these wonderful things, Chris. And yes, now I want to go to a desert, and, and now I'm strangely thirsty. And, but what does this have to do with this idea that you've been wrestling with about how worship and justice are not disconnected from God's viewpoint, that they are intrinsically intertwined? Why we're in this text as we close this series is because what we see in this text, vividly, an example, is that justice flows from worship. Justice flows from worship. See, in the face of all the injustices she had faced 
The question I was asking is, why are you talking to her about worship? He spends so much time talking to her about worship. I would think that you would probably benefit from talking to her about racism or talking to her about marriage or relationship. I would think that that would be the felt need. But no, Jesus knew the true felt need of her life, and that's why he spent so much time talking about worship, because what the scriptures teach us is that injustice in this world flows from idolatry. Injustice in our world flows from idolatry. The biblical explanation for all injustice we see in our world is the fact that human beings worship things more than God. That they push God out of the center and they allow something else to become the object of their worship. And whenever something else or someone else other than God is worshipped, injustice can be bred in this world. If you've ever experienced racism, it's because injustice was flowing out of the worship of one's identity to the point where you think your identity is greater than the other. If you've ever seen poverty ravage people's lives, especially in a country like ours where the resources are plentiful, where people don't have to experience poverty the way they do, why is, it that, why is that the case? Because we worship comfort and pleasure and things, and we seek to amass more and more that's in our culture, that's in the air. And out of that comes the injustice of poverty that people are often experiencing in ways that are so dehumanizing. On and on and on. If you look where there is injustice in the world, if you scratch the surface of it and get to the heart, you will find something other than God being worshipped. And when something other than God is worshipped, people will be dehumanized. And so Jesus is talking to her about worship because at the heart of her painful experience, she has experienced the things she's experienced because injustice was all around her because idolatry was all around her. People worshipped things more than God, and she was the victim of that. See, as a church, we engage with injustice, not just because it's wrong and hurts people, but we push back against it because injustice is an expression of false worship. Wherever there's injustice, something other than God is being worshipped, and that fires us up to enter into that space and say God's glory will not be robbed of him. We engage in those places and are the light and serve and love in order to push back against injustice because we know at the heart of those injustices are idolatries, the worship of other things other than God. See, it's the worship of money over people. That should offend us because it offends God when, when we see the worship of power, comfort, sex, individualism, collectivism, anything that is worshipped more than God should offend us and it should alert us because it should let us know if that is left untamed, injustice will sprout. See, the reinforcement and the recentering of worshiping Jesus alone, it does something powerful to us. When we gather like this and we worship Jesus alone and then we go from here, we're being sent out into the world with a deep reminder that Jesus alone should be worshiped, should be lifted up. And when we go into the world and we see 
places where Jesus is not worshipped, where we see false worship that leads to idolatry, that leads to injustice, we leave from here fired up and ready to engage not because we're experts, not because we figured this out, not because we're thought leaders. We go into those places because we are fired up from this foundation. Jesus alone deserves to be worshipped, and when he is worshipped, injustice falls. When he's not worshipped, injustice brews. And so we go from these places of worship, re-energized to engage in the work of justice. Because we can't tolerate people being crushed by systems that are designed around the false worship of things other than Jesus. But I love this story as we close and as the worship team comes forward. This story reminds me that the work of justice is messy, the work of justice is scandalous. That if we're to engage in the work of justice, people may look at us in a certain way. As Jesus engaged, he was judged. He was misread. He was misunderstood. As we seek, like Jesus, to drink from the cup of shame, isolation, and pain that's experienced in our world, that will be a messy process. And that's what justice work involves drinking from the cup of pain that people are carrying in our world. And we engage there because we are so moved and transformed by the fact that Jesus drank from the cup of pain that we carried. Because he redeemed us, we go into the world and seek to engage in justice. And we offer the hope that's found in Jesus alone. See, what enables us to engage in the work of justice is the cross. Because it's through the cross that we are empowered to worship, that we are empowered to come into right relationship with God and to enter his presence. I can't think of a better way to end this sermon to invite us to receive communion because it's at communion where we celebrate when Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath when he drank from the cup of our sin our shame, our isolation and we're reminded of what the price that was paid in order for us to be made whole could I invite us to stand as you came in this morning you should have received the communion cup But if you did not, if you would just kindly just raise your hand and one of the greeters will be by. There's some folks over here to my left. They'll be by very, very shortly. Just keep your hand raised, if you would, until they come by. the 11th chapter, verse 23, and onward, Paul the Apostle says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you for your broken body. It's broken for our sin to make us whole. And thank you, Lord, for how your cross not only heals us individually, but heals our world. We receive your broken body. Let's receive the bread. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood. The sacrifice on the cross Lord, at this moment as we receive communion, your word says that we are proclaiming your death until you return. Lord, we are proclaiming, heralding, declaring your death. To our dying world, we say a Savior died for you that you might live. We thank you, Lord, for this cup. We come to your table and experience the grace that awaits us when we receive it yet again. Let's receive the cup at this time. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Can I invite us to worship at this time? If you feel comfortable, can I invite you to raise your hands in the presence of God? going to worship. We're going to come before the presence of the Lord yet again. And at this time, the prayer team is in the back to my left and your right. At any given moment, you can come out of your seat and receive prayer for anything that you're carrying in your heart today, anything that the message might have stirred for you, anything whatsoever. Let's worship Jesus together with our hands raised, our voices lifted.